Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Scottish Playoffs Group C! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. Last playoff episode. It is indeed. It's Group C of the playoffs. We had 13 Rex Factor winners. Tricky. Tricky number, so we decided to give the top seed, Robert the Bruce, a bye straight into the grand final. Mm. So we've got three groups, each with four monarchs, and what we're doing is we have one podcast episode on each, and at the end of that, I vote... Ali votes, and then you, the public, also vote for your favourite for each group who you want to go through to the final. Mm. You won't know how Ali and I vote until we do the results episode at the end. Often I don't know either. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Because uh, Ali was a little bit unwell and then I went on holiday, we didn't record this when we wanted to. Oh, yeah. So while the deadline for Group A and Group B for voting is the 30th of April, Mm. we thought we'd extend it a little bit for uh, Group C. So for this group, you've got until... The 4th of May. May the 4th. Star Wars Day. Hey. Hey, I knew that was something. The links to uh, the surveys for Group A, Group B and Group C are, I think they're in the notes of each playoff playoff episode, but also on rexfactor.wordpress.com. There's a page there and we'll be tweeting and Facebooking the links. So today, our final group, we have got these four monarchs for your delectation. Right. Kenneth McAlpin. Oh, biggie. Born in uh, circa 810, about 33 or so, and he becomes king in 843. Mm. The son of Alpin, hence Mac Mac Alpin. And he is our 10th seed. Oh. Alexander II, born in 1198, 16 when he became king in 1214. Mm -hmm. He's the son of William the Lion, and he is our fourth seed. Right, I should remember him. What's his stand? Oh, we'll do all that in a minute. We may come to that in due course. (laughs) Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, I know her. Born 1542, only six days old when she became queen in 1542. The daughter of James V, Ah, and she is our 13th and bottom seed. That still surprises mm. me. And finally, James the Sixth. Yes. Born in 1566, 13 months old when he became king in 1567. He is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mum versus son. And our sixth seed. So we've got the rather delicious thing there of uh, mother and son with Mary and James, but also the first monarch and the last monarch in the series with Kenneth McAlpin uh-huh. to James the Sixth, and they're in the same yeah. group. Yeah, yeah. And possibly our um, two of our most famous monarchs there. Mm. Aside from Robert the Bruce, they've got to be the two most famous. And yet the top seed is Alexander II in this group. Yeah, the one with, one with no interesting stack facts about him <laughs> at the start. Now, before we go on to the biographies, there's another important thing to consider, and that is who has got the best representation on a Heritage Limited playing card? Of course. Ali, you've seen these before, so obviously... You'll know what to expect, but um, who do you think comes out the best? Kenneth McAlpin, he's almost certainly at the bottom of the list there. He's, <laughs> he's, you know what I think of this era of history. He's wearing a rug. Yeah, a beige rug. A beige rug. Not much else to report there. Full stop. Alexander II, I like. That's proper medieval garb there. Proper crown. Thoughtful. Mm. 
Mary Queen of Scots, they have just drawn a medieval woman. Yep. Uh, James VI, what a dandy. He is quite dandyish there, isn't he? Uh, I like... I like Alexander the Second best. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there you are. So, Alexander the Second, perhaps, as you would expect, already ahead. <laughs> so, let's move on to... Biography! So, we'll go uh, in chronological order for biography, and okay. first up is Kenneth McAlpin. Mm. Context for his reign, mm. um, it's all post-Roman in mm. this period, so Scotland was not yet formed as a nation. No. Um, so we got the Picts dominant in the north and the northeast. Yeah. The Scots actually came from Ireland mm. and formed the kingdom of uh, Dalriata in the west of Scotland. We've got Britons in Strathclyde, so the southwest. Yeah. And we've got Saxons in Northumbria, so southeast Scotland. Okay, so it's not an identity of Scotland here. It's not an identity here yet, and it's not clear if that land mass we today call Scotland is actually going to become one land mass. Mm. different separate kingdoms could go either way could go anyway and in the ninth century it was the Picts who actually pretty much predominant they were the ones who were beginning to form a more cohesive kingdom but then vikings came along yeah they do that raids started in 795 but in 839 there was a major battle between the Picts and the vikings which saw the pictish king his sons his brothers his brother's sons basically everyone who was anyone killed in this terrible defeat Mm. and it left a big power vacuum Mm, not good. Well, not good for the Picts, but it's good for Kenneth McAlpin. Oh. He fills that vacuum. Okay. Because he's a Scot, not a Pict. So, instead, Kenneth McAlpin is able to take advantage. Um, he is from Dalriata, so the Scottish kingdom in the west. Yeah. Not clear if he succeeded his father as ruler of Dalriata, if we took the throne by force, but either way, he's from the west, ruling there, if he's in that sort of area, so Galloway sort of territory, he's probably grown up fighting Vikings because it being coastal on the sea. Yeah, left left of Scotland this time. Left of Scotland. Yeah. So he's probably got a loyal band of warriors that have fought with him through the years. He's a powerful, established warlord, mm. well-placed to take advantage of a power vacuum. Mm. Now, the Pictish king list uh, from this period suggests that there were actually two lines of succession after the Viking defeat of 839. So the remains of the dynasty probably are continuing and fighting for survival. What are the, the what's left of the Picts? Yeah. God, right. So they're really desperate, though. Really desperate. So they're fighting each other, but they're also probably fighting Kenneth McAlpin. Oh, they don't stand a chance, they. Because the laws of succession, as we found oh. out in the Scottish series, are by no means a strict and well-defined practice. They're really, really bad. So at this stage, with the Vikings marauding, probably you just need to have men with swords that can kill the other men with swords, mm. and you can basically claim the throne. Mm. And that is ultimately what Kenneth McAlpin does. Maybe he did it in battle. Yeah. Traditional. Maybe he just killed off his rivals. Traditional for Scotland. Or perhaps he engineered some kind of merger between the two kingdoms. Oh, traditional for 20th century corporate law. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> some suggestion that his mother might have been Pictish, or indeed he might have married a Pictish princess. Ah, good idea. Yeah, good so idea, if there was yeah. a bit of a gap, a bit of marriaging, a bit of womening, <laughs> <laughs> claim the throne. Yeah. Um, but either way, the Picts seem to disappear completely. Uh, w- the- in terms of their culture, their language, it all just kind of goes away. So a lot of ah. people wondered what happened to the Picts. The answer is Ken. Well, but what did he do with them? Yeah. Did he just inflict a bit of genocide on them? 
Yeah. Kill them all. Maybe there was a gradual merger of the two peoples. Yeah. And the Picts were just submerged into the Scots. Or perhaps it's a sort of Norman Conquest style thing where actually the Picts are there. They're just at this lower level that no one bothers to record because the people in charge are all Scots. Oh, okay. What's your? What do you think? I think it's unlikely that he became king without a bit of fighting, based on the next few hundred years of Scottish history. Yeah, but to get rid of, to kill everyone, he can't have killed everyone. So I suspect that there was some merger of the two peoples, but he probably killed a lot of important Picts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm going with the Norman model. Yeah. <laughs> um, either way, the question is, what does he actually do once he's king? Mm. And it's probably at this point useful to turn to our old friend, the Chronicle of the Kings of Alba. Hey. That's not the, is that the weird one? Uh, that's the one pre-John of Forden. So oh. this is the old, old one. This is one that gave us the um, great line about Ieth bequeathing nothing okay. memorable to history. Yeah. So it says about Kenneth. In the seventh year of his rule, he transferred the remains of St. Columba to the church which he built and attacked Saxonia six times, by which we assume Northumbria, the Saxons. Yeah. And he burnt down Dunbar and captured Melrose. However, the Britons burnt Dunblane and the Danes laid waste to Bictavia as far as Cluny and Dunkeld. He finally died of a tumour before the Ides of February on the third day of the week in the palace of Fortiviot. That's it. And that is what it tells us. God, it's painting a picture of, of chaos, really. Well, I suppose, what have we got? We've got the fact that he has overcome his Pictish rivals to take control of the kingdom, mm. and in some way has merged the two together, to form the basis of what will ultimately become Scotland, and he forms the royal dynasty that will last for several hundreds of years. Yeah. So he is a direct ancestor of Elizabeth II, ultimately. Oh yeah, through James VI. Mm. So, so that's why we take him as, as the start. That's why he's often seen as the start, because he kicks off the dynasty. Okay. But he isn't killed by Vikings, dies of natural causes, which, in fact, for <laughs> any Scottish king, <laughs> natural yeah. causes... Incredible, especially at this... I mean, we say this so many times, but mm. at this time, to be a Scottish king to die of natural causes is an incredible feat. Mm. This time? Yeah. Really, really impressive. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, he should get battling those points for that, just staying alive. Indeed. So, that's our first chap. Next up is Alexander II. Mm. For him... There's a different context, but nevertheless, Scotland as we know it is not yet fully complete. Mm. Um, the northern and western isles are ruled by Norway. Mm. In the sort of Aberdeenshire sort of area, uh, the territory of Murray mm. is very rebellious. Also, Caithness at the top and Galloway on the west are kind of independent entities. Right. And then when William the Lion, Alex's father, tried to take Northumbria back, he was captured and forced to sign a humiliating treaty mm. and also later submitted to John. Mm. So Scotland is kind of being seen as subservient to England in this period, when Alexander becomes king. Submitted to John? But what will Alexander II do? Now, John um, does have a few problems. He's forced to agree to the Magna Carta when he's under pressure from his nobles, but he repudiates it and instigated a civil war in England. Mm. The Barons' War, as is often known. Alexander II, in good old traditional Scottish-style things, oh, civil war in England, don't mind if I do, <laughs> invades the north yeah. of England, uh, Northumberland, and he receives homage from barons in Northumberland and indeed Yorkshire. Ah, okay. John isn't happy about this and counterattacks into Scotland, but the English nobles that are fighting him invite the French Dauphin to invade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so consequently, John is forced to go back 
down south to deal with that. And Alexander II marches his army not just into the north of England, but all the way down to Dover to pay homage to the Dauphin in the hope that he can ally against John. He'll be able to secure his territories that he's gained in the north. Totally thought you were going to say York. No, he goes all the way to Dover. He's not fighting battles and destroying people. He's just... Amazing, though. Unfortunately, John dies. Now, that might seem like a good thing, but in 1217, when he dies and leaves an infant son, Henry III, actually that takes out a lot of the fight of the rebels in England because they don't Mm. have any beef with his son. William the Marshal is on Henry III's side, and he is awesome. So he defeats Louis, the English rebels submit to Henry III, and the papacy also comes to support Henry III. So Alexander now doesn't have any friends and indeed is facing the threat of excommunication. So Mm. he's forced to submit to Henry III and give Carlisle back. Oh, what a waste of time. But thereafter, he has good relations with England. In 1221, he married Henry III's sister. Big, big match, isn't it? In 1237, he refused to pay Henry III homage as his liege lord, but does surrender his claim to Northumbria. Okay. Which his father had been obsessed with. So that's why William the Lion got captured by Henry II and had to submit to John because he was so desperate. For Northumbria. For Northumbria. So Alexander's a bit more realistic. He's like, okay, that's English. You keep it, but I'm not not accepting that Scotland is in any way subservient to England. Good trade. Now, by making these um, treaties and good relations with England, that means that he can focus on just sorting stuff out in Scotland. Mm. Because as we said, we've got a lot of confusion, a lot of grey areas about who owns what. And rather like Edward I, we drew a comparison... Alexander II is not a fan of grey areas. <laughs> Everything's quite black and white with him. Oh, and yes. basically, if he thinks that it should be part of his territory, then it is part of his territory. <laughs> um, we had the McWilliams, we mentioned before, descendants of Duncan II, who are claiming the throne. Mm. Early on in this reign, a rebellion is defeated, and then there's another one in 1229, which is also put down. And then in 1230, the very last of the McWilliam line was put to a public and brutal death. Mm. which we'll come back to in Scandal, but basically he completely ends that family line. Mm. The family tree is completely extinguished, and this generational conflict, which will be going on for a while, is gone. There are not dynastic rivals now to the Royal House of Scotland. That's quite a, um, a put-down, isn't it? You see in these horrible gangster films yeah. where they'll say that they'll extinguish their family. Yeah. I mean, he absolutely does then. There's no, yep. He just snuffed, yep. chops yep. the tree down. Very much so. Ooh. Mainland Scotland, as we said, still got these rebel areas. Now, the McWilliams were based in Murray, mm. so he sorted that out. Mm. He oh, was, that's his now? That is now his. So he's not just sorted the problem out, he's taken the land as well? I mean, it's land which he really, sh- Scots should have had before, but it's always been rebellious, but now he's probably snuffed out any leadership okay. in yeah. Murray. Yeah. He also takes control of Caithness, because the Norse Jarl there, who was in charge, allowed Alexander's bishop to be burnt. Ooh. Hall burning. Oh, of course, yeah. And he just watched and thought, oh, this is good, now I can ultimately put my own chap in charge and I'll be ruler. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for the Norse Jarl, Alexander II doesn't take very kindly to this, um, sends a huge army up there, um, completely undermines the Earl, the Earl is ultimately brought down, Alexander puts his own man in, and now Caithness is again part okay, of his good. territory. When his actual ally in uh, Galloway dies, and... 
Galloway's this lordship, a very powerful lordship with a big army, but also a big navy. He's got an illegitimate son, the uh, Lord of Galloway, and by their laws, he should be able to succeed. Alexander thinks, well, he's got some daughters who are legitimate and married to my supporters. I think I'll just take Galloway for myself and split the lands between all of the people there. Oh, clever. The uh, Galwegians aren't very happy about this and rebel, but they are, of course, brutally defeated in a rebellion. Does he snuff out all of their family line? <laughs> he snuffs people out there. So, mainland Scotland is now entirely Scotland for the first time in history. Alexander II has got rid of all of those grey areas. Wow. So the islands are still playing around? They are, and he's obviously got his eye on those next. The Western oh. Isles are next. This is a very volatile region ruled by the Sea Lords and uh, the King of Norway bit of a regional power struggle went on um alexander decided let's start messing around backing regional powers mm. he just offers king harkon the force of norway some money and says can't just have it i mean that's quite a after all this mucking around he could have just bought it well no because harkon rejects the okay, offer right, yeah. so plan b alexander the second in 1249 raises an army and a huge armada thanks to his uh, acquisition of Galloway, oh, yeah. ejects Harkin's local agent, Ewan of Argyle, and takes a fleet to Carrera off Oban. Okay. And he's preparing to conquer the Western Isles. Brilliant. He was then visited in his dream by three saints who told him not to continue oh. his invasion. When he refused their commands, he was struck dead. Oh, that's a real pity. I was so looking forward to a big sea battle. Well, at least he did the mainland stuff. It wasn't like he was on the verge of doing that and he couldn't actually draw a line under it. It yeah. was is everything he'd got he'd done, got to the end of the level and press save. Yes. But it said why do those saints always get in the way? Wretched saints. Especially of boat fun. Mm. It is good. I can see why it was number four. Next up, a few hundred years later, Mary Queen of Scots. Right, how many episodes? <laughs> yes, <on> so. <laughs> Strap in. Context for her reign. Yeah. Um, Scotland is now properly Scotland, um, but we've had a succession of chaotic minorities with all of these Jameses, mm. five successive Jameses, a lot of early promise, prestigious marriage, and then a violent death just when things were looking good. Mm. Her father, James V, irritated Henry VIII again mm. by not adopting the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, was defeated at Solway Moss and died shortly afterwards. Mm. And he leaves a six-year-old daughter in the form of Mary. So Henry VIII thinks this is a bit of a jolly good opportunity for me here, six-day-old girl as queen. Mm. He wants to marry Mary to his son, Prince Edward, and effectively rule Scotland. Yeah, Exactly the plan that Edward I had with Margaret the Maid of Norway. It's a solid, solid plan. So the Treaty of Greenwich in 1543, betrothal is agreed. Scotland are going to break the old alliance with France. Mary will marry Edward, and Henry VIII is going to be the boss of Scotland. And it could have brought forward the um, union... By 200 years or so. It could, but the Scots aren't really all that keen. Mm. Mary, Queen of Scots' mother, Mary of Guise, secures the regency of Scotland and then has the Treaty of Greenwich rejected. Blooming Guise. Henry is not happy, mm. and he launches a terrible invasion known as the Rough Wooing, oh, where yeah. they're trying to force Scotland's compliance. But Mary, for her safety and independence, is sent to be brought up at the French court. Okay. Now, she was uh, betrothed to the Dauphin and uh, was given an excellent education. She's fated for her quick wit, her composure, her charm and her beauty. Mm-hmm. In 1558, she indeed marries the Dauphin in Paris. And after the death of Mary I of England, she is declared the true queen of England because many Catholics in Europe believe that the new English queen, Elizabeth I, 
is illegitimate. Yeah. As the daughter of Anne Boleyn. So Mary is becoming queen consort of France. She's already the queen regnant of Scotland. And now they're declaring her queen regnant of England as well. It's. I remember th- this when we did the episode that it's an incredible time that he could have had it all solved with Henry's plan mm. and, and bringing forward this, basically bringing forward like the union of the two crowns. Yeah. But then within it turns around in a matter of years, you've got this enormously powerful woman who's queen of France, Scotland, and potentially England, mm. a, a North Atlantic powerhouse. But then tragedy strikes. Oh. 1559, uh, Henri of France uh, is killed in a freak jousting accident when he's just 40 years old. Uh, in 1560, her husband, now Francis II, dies aged just 15. Ah. And her mother, in the same year, at the age of 45, as regent in Scotland, dies just after John Knox has inspired a Protestant Reformation in Scotland. Oh, he was such a pain. So Mary returns to Scotland as a 19-year-old Catholic widow in a now vehemently Protestant country. Oh, dear. But... She attempts unity. Her Privy Council has a mixture of Protestants and Catholics um, because she has agreed that while she will practice as a Catholic, she will accept the Reformation in Scotland. It's the new age of tolerance here. It is. She presides over a glamorous court, is uh, charming the public um, as she goes on these these tours, all this sort of, you know, dancing and frivolity and lots and lots Mm. of fun. Glamour is back in Scotland. And indeed, she shows her commitment to the unity by putting down a Catholic rebellion by the Earl of Huntley. The important thing for Mary is also that she wants to be recognised as Elizabeth's successor in England. Mm. So she's not going to try to overthrow Elizabeth, but as Elizabeth doesn't have an heir, Mary is next in line in terms of the family tree. Mm. She wants official recognition. It's a good claim, isn't it? It's a very good claim. Unfortunately, William Cecil, the chief minister of Elizabeth I, thinks that Mary is basically the devil and it's his life ambition to A, stop her being Queen of England and B, just kill her. Right. They were due to meet Elizabeth and Mary in 1562, but a massacre of French Protestants by her uncle led to the meeting being cancelled and the two queens ultimately never met. And they were due to meet just uh, because... To have a chat about the succession. And, and all things were going that well. They were going that well. Oh, crikey. They're now pesky uncles. Yeah. Who was her uncle's the Guise fellow? Yeah, the Guise. So, Mary doesn't have England uh, realistically coming into her hands, so she decides to get on with things, and she marries for a second time, and it's to a chap called Lord Darnley. Uh A Catholic young man with a claim to the English and Scottish thrones. Upsets Elizabeth, but more importantly, it upsets the balance of power in Scotland, and the Protestant lords, under her half-brother, the Earl of Murray, led a rebellion. Right. But they were defeated by Mary. Yeah, because now she's got a really, really solid claim, isn't she? Very solid claim, and indeed, with Darnley, she has a son. But, unfortunately, Darnley is a bit of a rotter. Mm. He's pretty wayward, he's pretty jealous, and he kind of wants to be king for himself, which she doesn't allow. Mm. He actually um, joins the rebel lords in organising the assassination of Mary's secretary when they told him that uh, Mary was having an affair with said secretary. He was later assassinated himself, and Mary married the man suspected of killing her husband, the Earl of Bothwell. Uh... The nobles, the other nobles, raise an army against Bothwell, um, ostensibly to rescue Mary, but when she negotiates his escape for her surrender to them, they imprison her on Loch Leven Castle and force her to relinquish the Scottish crown. She is made to abdicate. End of. But she is not end of yet. She escapes, raises another army, 
and then is defeated by half-brother, the Earl of Murray. Mm. So she flees to England, hoping that Elizabeth will help her reclaim the throne. Mm. Instead, she's kept under house arrest for the next 19 years. Because she seems as a threat to Elizabeth... Seen as a threat to Elizabeth, her supporters in Scotland are ultimately defeated, and she's just this slightly awkward, what do we do with her? Yeah, so in 1587, after years of Catholic plots against Elizabeth, Cecil and uh, Francis Walsingham are finally able to actually have evidence of Mary herself being complicit in one of these plots. She is charged for treason with the Babington plot and beheaded in 1587, just 44 years old. God, it took Cecil's a bright spark, isn't it? But it took him 19 yeah. years to actually pin her down. It's pretty mm. good. Well done, William Cecil. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Mary Queen of Scots, for Should avoiding it for so long. An episode on him. And the person who uh, took over from her, of course, is her own son, James the Sixth. Oh, yeah. Here we go. So we don't need a lot of uh, context for the reign, really, because no. obviously we've just done it. But he faces, in a way, a similar challenge. Scotland is virulently Protestant, and the, the uh, Presbyterian Kirk is arguably more austere than the Church of England and a bit anti-monarchical. Oh. So he's facing a bit more of an existential threat from the Church. Even though he's brought up as Protestant, he's but got the battle of who is dominant, Church or Crown. Because they're really back to basics, everyone born equal. Mm. Type stuff. Mm. And the nobles are divided, Protestant and Catholic forces at large. Early on, we basically got a civil war, but no one is really fully loyal to the crown. Mm. And indeed, when James becomes king in 1567, his mother is actually still alive. Yeah, that's such a weird state of affairs. So the early years, there is indeed civil wars in Scotland where Mary's supporters fought on. Um, his coronation was apparently the worst attended in Scottish history. <laughs> people don't, a lot of people don't acknowledge it. Three of his re- first regents are killed before the uh, Marian faction are defeated in 1573. Oh, right, so there's enemies really close to him at all mm. times. And it's a lonely upbringing. His father was killed when he was eight months old. He was separated from his mother at ten months. He doesn't have any close family. He's very intelligent, given a rigorous education by uh, a chap called George Buchanan. But unfortunately, this uh, chap also beats him in the hope that he will then respect the Kirk. Instead, James actually ends up advocating the divine right of kings and goes completely (laughs) the opposite direction. Things look up for James for the first time when his French cousin Esme Stuart um, comes over in 1579. And James is wowed by this um, handsome, dashing, cultured older man. Yeah. Um, the fourth regent, Morton, is brought down and executed in 1581. But Protestants in Scotland, and indeed the uh, court of Elizabeth I, think, oh dear, this isn't very good. Esme Stuart might be making James a bit pro-French, a bit pro-Catholic, even a bit pro-Mary. So in 1582, we have the Ruthven raid. The Earl of Ruthven held James captive and ultimately forces Esme Stuart out of Scotland. Not dead? Not dead, but he does die <laughs> back in France. Okay. But 1583, James is able to escape from his captivity, kill off the Ruthvens, and asserts his majority. Brilliant. But there's still struggles to face in Scotland. He's got opposition from the Kirk, wayward figures in the nobility. We've got the Catholic Earl Huntley, the Protestant Earl of Bothwell, the different one, who keeps mm. besieging James in all of his palaces and showing up and mm. nearly killing him. There's also the Gowrie conspiracy, where apparently James was being abducted and they were going to kill him but he's able to escape with his supporters in the nick of time nice but he is gradually able to assert royal control um over the kirk um he is able to appoint bishops and summon the general assembly and sideline the more militant leaders okay so he establishes crown above church 
By 1600, most of the rebel nobles are either dead or defeated, so he has finally managed to secure control of the rather chaotic Scotland that mm. he inherited from his mother. Mm-hmm. And then he gets a marriage as well to uh, Anne of Denmark, fellow Protestant. Mm. Um, he played the romantic hero by braving storms to uh, go over to actually marry her in Sweet. Oslo. Lovely. Also developed a taste for beer. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. He went on tour afterwards, right, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. But he also shares with his mother a desire to become the next ruler in England. Mm. So to do that, he's got to play a difficult game because his mother is imprisoned in England. And as such, he doesn't kick up a storm when Mary was executed in 1587. Mm. Plays the long game, tries to keep on Elizabeth's good side. How? Imagine that conversation, though. (laughs) I'm afraid I had to kill your mother. Mm, It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, despite doing this, Elizabeth still doesn't give any official recognition. Mm. Which is a bit mean. Mm. So instead he forged secret links with Robert Cecil. And it's very successful because Robert Cecil is chief minister of Elizabeth I. Yeah. So when Elizabeth died in 1603, James is acclaimed as king unopposed within hours of Elizabeth's death. Wow. And he becomes king of England. So the king of Scots has become the king of England. A, I mean, that is Rexy, isn't it? He's very Rexy. And so he heads off to England, only returns once to Scotland in 1617. Forgot some of- <laughs> to pick this up. You all right? Good. So left my charger. <laughs> yeah. So in England, he ends a twenty-year war with Spain, pacifies the Anglo-Scottish border, mm. um, but he isn't universally popular. We have the gunpowder plot. Oh yeah. Uh, the Thirty Years' War, which is with Spain and lots of Protestant forces in Europe, unpopular in terms of James because he doesn't want to go to war, whereas yeah. everybody else does. <laughs> Um, and he has various squabbles with Parliament over money and them not doing what he wants them to and all this sort of stuff. He sounds, to me, I, I, see, I struggle to remember if we said this at the time, but <laughs> like a proto-Charles II. Well, he's he's got some elements of him. I suppose he's he's a he's politically canny, uh-huh. which Charles II also was, but unfortunately Charles I wasn't. Yeah, but he sort of fancies having a bit of fun rather than war. Well, he just he, he's pro-peace. He's not necessarily the party king that Charles II was. Okay, so but it he needs does... a bit of refining and then we get... Yeah. <laughs> um, his grand project, once he becomes King of England, is to create Great Britain. He wants England and Scotland to merge into one state. Mm. So he's got various symbols and titles, but ultimately he isn't successful. There are still separate laws and separate parliaments. Okay. But nevertheless, the two countries are ruled by one man. We have a union of the crowns. And they're unlikely to go to war again, aren't they? Unlikely to go to war when they've got the same man in charge. Yeah. And then on the 27th of March, 1625, um, he'd fallen seriously ill with malaria, ignored the advice of his medics, and suffered a stroke. And then he died during a violent attack of dysentery, in filth and misery, but at the grand old age for the Scottish king, 58. It's not glamorous. Not the most glamorous way to go, but he dies as Mm. king of England, which is a pretty impressive record. Pretty impressive indeed. So, those are the biographies of all the various monarchs. Uh, if you're going to turn one of those into a uh, HBO or Hollywood story, who do you think's got the... Well, uh, Kenneth straight out, forget that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I imagine the executives would say Mary, Queen of Scots. And they probably point to various <laughs> works in the offing, or indeed already produced. Oh, really? But, I mean, the Alexander II stuff would be great. But James the Sixth would be fantastic. Mm. Really, oh, less warry. Bit political, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, I'll settle with Mary. <laughs> there we go. Okay. 
So, those are the biographies. Let's see how they do when we review them. Battleliness! So, uh, for the factors, what I thought we'd do, we'd go in ascending order of score. Right. So, lowest scoring monarch in this group for battleliness was James VI. He got naught out of 20. Really? Well, I mean, in his favour, we'd got... We said the union of the crowns, his successful diplomacy with the English, giving him a pension, a promise not to prejudice his claim. Mm. He doesn't do too much protesting about his mother's death, but, you know, he does a little bit of complaining, but privately make sure he doesn't burn those bridges. His correspondence with Robert Cecil is all ultimately successful. And we have the first Scot crowned at the Stone of Schoon since 1292, and the Scottish king is ruling England. That's brilliant. But there's not a shot fired, is there? Not a shot fired. He's acclaimed without any opposition at all. And he's actually a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a cowardly character. He uh, wore thickly padded clothing for fear of assassination. That's, I mean, that's a good idea. Yeah, uh, understandably. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, we said one of the main causes of conflict when he was in England was that when we had the Thirty Years' War with Spain, the English, including Parliament, was desperate for war, but James doesn't want it. He signs that peace treaty early on, refuses to join in the 1620s, and actually 40,000 Scottish mercenary troops fought in this war, but James VI and First of England... Doesn't want a part well, of it. Grounds, just he doesn't. He just wants a bit of stability and yeah, to try it because the crowns have been joined. He needs to work on that. He wants peace. Yeah, which you know, laudable in some ways, but it's just very odd. <laughs> I, mean, for a, I just don't for a, Does he not understand <laughs> what we're doing here? <laughs> he's got zero out of twenty. Graham, this is inconceivable. Very despite poor. the fact that he gets the biggest reward with the Kingdom of England. That's so true, but not by conquest. But not by not and not by effort, really. <laughs> yeah. to, it's like those people who get in the Guinness Book of Records <laughs> by um, having the longest nails or the longest hair or something. That's you didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. You just you literally did, did nothing. Yeah, you just. In fact, you did less than me. I go for <laughs> haircuts. He didn't even bother doing that. And this is this is this fella. He's got the world's longest nails. <laughs> Third in the group is Mary, Queen of Scots. She only scored 7.5 out of 20 uh, for Rex Factor, so that's actually the second worst of the Rex Factor winners. Mm. But she actually has quite a lot of positives. We had in 1562 the Huntley Rebellion. This was the Catholic noble that rebelled. Mm. Mary raises uh, an army, captures Inverness Castle, and then her half-brother, the Earl of Murray, uses that army to defeat Huntley in battle, after which Huntley dies of apoplexy. Right. In 1565, Protestant rebels, led by the said Earl of Murray, rebel after Mary marries Lord Darnley, and they think things are getting all a bit too Catholic. Mm -hmm. Mary, again, raises a large army, and she rode at the head of this army, wearing a steel cap and bearing a pistol. Yeah, that was cool. And it's known as the chase-about raid, because she was basically just chasing them about Scotland until eventually they're forced to flee to England. She was desperate for a bit of a Barney, wasn't she, (laughs) there? Even John Knox admitted that uh, she was very courageous. Yeah, that says a lot. Oh, that man annoyed me. He described it as man-like. <laughs> of course he did. Um, her secretary, uh, David Rizzio, was murdered in front of her when she was six months pregnant. Mm. Very uh, horrible experience for her, but she makes a daring escape via an underground passage mm. and then rode 25 miles to Dunbar to meet up with her supporters. Mm. And it takes about five hours because she has to stop a few times to be sick because, as we said, she's six months pregnant at the time. She's so... Even this, actually, I was just the expression, she's got balls or she's ballsy <laughs> somehow... 
praising men when even when you're talking about mm. women. Yeah. Sorry, I'm eating a bit of Easter egg. It's that time of year. <laughs> she escaped again from Loch Leven Castle. So this is after she's been forced to abdicate. Mm. Within a week of escaping, she's got nine earls, nine bishops, and about 6,000 troops have co- mm. come to her banner. Mm. And she then leads a march to take Dumbarton Castle and probably secure the kingdom again. Mm. Unfortunately, she loses the battle along the way, but mm. nevertheless... Yeah. And as you said, Elizabeth I, her contemporary monarch in England, um, is very cautious, a sort of wait-and-see attitude, but Mary always likes to do something. But I think we've always, in the past, really favoured those who do, Mm. even if it's to their peril in the end, compared to someone who just sits around and waits and comes up trumps. Mm. Against her, unfortunately, is the fact that she basically does lose most of her battles. Battle of Carberry Hill in 1567... We had a standoff between Mary and Bothwell against the other nobles, but there's not actually a battle. Mary negotiates with them to ensure Bothwell is able to escape, and she then surrenders to them and abdicates, and we haven't had a shot fired. Right. And then in 1568, as you said, she raises all those troops after being made to abdicate. She's marching across Dumbarton. She's looking amazing, but her rival, half-brother, Murray, inferior in numbers, but he ambushes the army, Mary's commander was either ill, incompetent, or both, suffers a terrible defeat, and Mary made the fateful decision, instead of regrouping in Scotland, fled south across the border to England. Yeah, uh, it's like, yeah, fled south to prison. Strange decision for Mary, I think. She played it safe by going to England rather than trying one last roll of the dice in Scotland. Well, or you could say that rather than doing the kind of practical thing of being like, right, let's go home, have a think, regroup. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit of panic, which is the other side to her sort of great heroic charges. Perhaps she also can go the other way in a bad time. But again, she's doing something. She's not just being sensible. She's being dramatic. I like her a lot. It's a lot of good stuff there, but tinged with, ultimately, a lot of being defeated. Yeah. There is a tinge. That's a hell of a tinge, isn't (laughs) it, it, in battliness? Second in the group is Kenneth McAlpin. He scored 14 out of 20. How? Well, one interpretation, of course, how did he become king? What happened to the Picts? Kenneth the Conqueror. Mm. Indeed, that was his nickname. Was it? It was in Gaelic. Um, as I said, Pictish Kinglish continued until 848, a series of short-lived rulers, I think about five in as many years. Chroniclers suggest that basically Kenneth is spending these five years killing them off. Killing each one, <laughs> like splat the rat, it keeps, they <laughs> yeah. keep popping up. And, of course, we have the glorious encounter where Kenneth McAlpin gave four reasons for going to war with the Picts. Mm. Um, one of which was the fact that the Picts had apparently stolen his dog. What? I don't remember that. But the nobles were too afraid to attack. So Kenneth decided to persuade them, and he did this by dressing up as an angel. And his disguise was made with scaly fish skins, which apparently would glow in the dark. So he dresses up as a fishy angel, visits the nobles at night, and uh, persuades them to go to war. That was Ken? That was Kenneth McAlpin. I didn't, totally didn't put those two things... I remember that. Yeah, that's Kenneth but, McAlpin. But, I mean, he actually did that? Well, apparently. <laughs> so his first attempt was they nicked my dog, killed my dog. <laughs> and then he dressed... Did he think they had, like, a mermaid fetish or something? He goes to their bedroom, dresses a... Did that happen? Didn't it happen? What definitely did happen, apparently, is that he invaded Northumbria six times. Mm. This includes plundering a Benician fortress at Dunbar and a monastery at Melrose. 
Likely these are raids rather than conquests, but it does help continue uh, this gradual collapse of the once uh, all-powerful kingdom of Northumbria, and it probably sets up the later conquest of Lothian, the southern mm. Scotland, by his successors. Mm. So that's more concrete, definite military action. He almost certainly does some fighting in coming to the throne. Yeah, it's certainly stronger than um, James VI. Mm. Against him, um, an alternative to conquest is that he fills the power vacuum... And then there's just this merger of Scots and Picts. Mm. Maybe that happens lower down the chain, but it seems unlikely that the people at the top of the Pictus chain just idly sat by and let him do it. Oh, yeah. He will have taken all their heads, I reckon. The British kingdom of Strathclyde re-emerges in 839 and burnt Dunblane, and that's the first independent activity since about 760. So that's a bit of a negative for him that this other territory... But to be fair to him, he does resolve this by marrying his daughter to the heir of the kingdom of Strathclyde. Fine. Sorted. Yep. And the Vikings, we've got the Western Isles overrun in this period. So in 848, he had to move the relics of Columba from Iona, which is the spiritual home of the Scots, to Mm. Dunkeld further inland. Mm. But there's only actually one serious raid, and actually he seems to have had a Viking ally, or a Viking Scottish ally, Gothrith Ferguson, Mm. who apparently settled Argyll. So perhaps... Kenneth is able to secure the west with an ally there, and it's on the east that there's a bit of trouble. You know I like that. Bit of war, balance with diplomacy. A bit of cunning. Mm. So that's pretty good for Kenneth. Admittedly, some of it is a little bit of a high tail, but nevertheless, Mm. fishy angels attacking the Saxons. Fishy angels has tipped over the edge for me. But best of all, 14.5 out of 20, just half a mark stronger, the third best of the Rex Factor winners is Alexander II. Yeah. And he's got a lot to his name. We have the Barons' War in England, 1215 to 16. Uh, he invades the north of England, besieges Norham, and gains the homage of the northern lords. Mm. And then when John counter-invaded, the Yorkshire Barons fled to Alexander and did him homage. Nice. He avoids battle when John comes up north, but then when John heads back down south, Alexander II, as we said, all the way down to Dover to see the Dauphin. Can't believe that. And that's the furthest south a Scottish army ever goes. I mean, I do believe it. But I can't. (laughs) This this band of uh, Scots, all I know, probably not, but all kilted, (laughs) ginger, and standing on the standing on the white cliffs of Dover, going, look at that. (laughs) Well, here we are. Because Dover Castle would have been there then, wouldn't it? Of course, yeah. yeah. Wow. And he's only seventeen at this point. What? Mm. What? When he leads them all down south? Yeah. Wow. That's that's Henry the Second territory. In Murray, he puts down a major MacWilliam rebellion in 1215, where the leaders are executed, and then another one in 1228, Mm. and then he kills all the MacWilliam leaders. And as we said, he executes the last descendant to permanently erase both the dynastic threat, but also Murray as a rebellious territory. In Caithness, as we said, that Norse Earl tried to increase his own power and acquiesce in the murder of uh, a bishop, but Alexander raises a huge army, hunts down the murderers, and confiscates the earldom. Yep, good. And in, and in Galloway, 1235, he broke up that powerful lordship, defeated an alliance of Galwegians, Irish and Manx forces, mm-hmm. and secures all of mainland Scotland as being his, as well as a very large army and navy in Galloway. That's the best bit, isn't it? I think it, like to take uh, to, to do all the marching down to England, just show himself as a threat, okay, it didn't come to anything but he could then say right well they know what we're about yeah <laughs> turn his focus to scotland and properly sort scotland out mm. really good 
And then he was looking at the Western Isles. He expelled the Norse agent from Argyll, Ewan, in 1249. And um, he was he was so close. It was like he was mm. about to get it back. But unfortunately, mm. died just before he got there. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's a bit of a negative for him. The fact that he doesn't manage to conquer the Western Isles. He's got this 200-strong armada, big army, but... I reckon it's like uh, Edward I for me. Mm. He would have done it. I mean, there's a lot of similarities with Edward I in terms yeah. of their characters, their approach, their very black and white <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, and he, if he, he, he just died during. Um, and actually, unlike Edward I, his son sorted it out. Mm. But, um, no, I definitely, I definitely think it's all good. Mm. The other negatives, I suppose, we could say, like, you know, you point out the Barons' War in England. Ultimately, it was a bit fruitless. He doesn't mm. gain anything. And again, you know, Treaty of York, where he abandons his claim in perpetuity to Northumbria. Mm. On the one hand, that's not showing ambition, but on the other hand, as you said. Yeah, it's sorted. It's sorting the, Scotland. Yeah, I like it a lot. So there are the uh, four monarchs for battliness. How are they uh, how are they comparing at this point, would you say? Um, they're, they're going very much along their score lines, mm. which isn't always the case like the previous episodes. Um, in fact, talking of previous episodes, there was one where I, um, how I liked how pragmatic they were. Constantine the second, maybe. Mm, I think it was him avoiding battle with Athelstan, but then making yeah. deals with. Yeah, Vikings. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Mm. That's that's what I feel about Alexander the second. So he is he is coming up roses. Mm. I suppose an interesting one with this is perhaps Mary's the one where we've actually got personal anecdotes of her kind of yeah personal courage. Mm, yeah, true. Which maybe we don't have for the others. We don't know if Alexander the second is actually personally a great warrior. Mm. Or if he's just a very effective commander, but obviously being an effective commander. Perhaps being an effective commander is more important than just being a courageous person. Uh, definitely. Uh, and we have to. Uh, it's the difficulty with Rex Factor is what's appropriate for the time. Mm. Like, definitely. The later you go, definitely it's more effectively further and further from the battlefield. Yeah. And so, although we've got Mary as being right in the thick of it with a pistol, that's actually probably not what you want at the time. Yeah. You want the effective <laughs> commanders. Whereas Alexander II or Kenneth McAlpin time. Mm. Mm. Scandal. Now, bottom for scandal, and this was quite controversial in terms of our scoring, was Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. She only got 5 out of 20, the second lowest of all the Rex Factor winners. Oh, I remember some complaints, complaints on Facebook. Sorry, more Easter eggs. <laughs> some complaints on Facebook about this because... So we were saying a lot of this sort of history is written by the men and how do you impugn a powerful woman, You mm. all these stories about her. And yet, when it's William Rufus and we've got the clerics that hate him talking about mood lighting and fancy shoes and whatnot... Yeah, we're all for it. We're yeah. all for it. Yeah. And as you see, there's a lot to be all for, if you believe the rumours. Um we have her as a femme fatale. There was this French poet found hiding under a bed in 1563. That is so, so <laughs> dodgy. Come on. Lord Darnley, her second husband, was also her first cousin. Yes. And they didn't bother to wait for papal dispensation for, you know, marrying your first cousin. Mm, yeah. The nobles convinced Darnley that she was sleeping with uh, David Rizzio, her secretary and an Italian musician. French poets, Italian musicians. Yep. And she scandalises Europe by marrying the Earl of Bothwell, the man widely accused of murdering her second husband. Sounds like a, like she's a mob wife in The Sopranos <laughs> or something. <laughs> and she was accused by Bess of Hardwick when uh, she was imprisoned in England of having an affair with Bess's husband, the Earl of Shrewsbury. She's a bit of a plotter, 
when she gets to England, she becomes a beacon for Catholic plots. Mm. She's linked to the Northern Rebellion and the Rodolfi plot in a bid to marry yet again, this time to the Duke of Norfolk, who ends up being executed for his troubles. Why? Because uh, for... he was plotting to marry Mary and plots against Elizabeth I. Oh, plots against Elizabeth rather than... Mm. Mm. There's also the Throckmorton plot in 1583, and ultimately she was beheaded for the Babington plot. And Lord Darnley's death, her second husband, um, Mary is suspected by many people of having been involved in this. Darnley was recuperating from illness in Glasgow at the time, but Mary persuaded him to come to Holyrood in Edinburgh, i.e. where she was. Mm. And then on the night of the murder, she remembered that she had to attend a servant's wedding. Oh, yes. And left. Oh, yes. Just before the house was blown up and then he was suffocated outside. I was very, very pro this being proper scandal. She still attended the wedding. Yeah. She delayed court going into mourning for five days, and she denied Darnley having a state funeral. Yeah, I mean, how, how, how on earth did she spin that <laughs> any other way? And how on earth did she only get five out of 20 from us? Yeah. I mean, if that were a king, just that last bit alone. Yeah. In our defence, and thus against her... It wasn't her fault that a French poet was stalking her and hiding under the bed. You won't know this, but I just gave Graham a very (laughs) doubtful look. There's no evidence of an affair with uh, Rizzio. It's possible that she might have been kidnapped, if not indeed raped, by Bothwell. And um, she may not have been behind Darnley's death. Indeed, it almost seems like every noble except her was guilty of it, and they just used it as a way of impugning her good name. I'll tell you what, out of those... Mm. I'm dubious about the um, uh, French poet. Mm-hmm. Think that that's always going to spell trouble. If you're a French <laughs> poet, you need to be very, very careful. Um, uh, plotting certainly. Darnley's death. I, I'll take that one. But the others, maybe not. But still, that five is looking really. We should have given her a higher score. Yeah. Next up is Kenneth McAlpin, who scored eleven and a half out of twenty. Average. Yep, a seventh best of the 13. Against him, no, for him. (laughs) We mentioned that alliance with the Viking Scottish chap Gosfrith Ferguson, and this indicates a bit of an accommodation with Vikings, and some chroniclers hint that the 839 defeat of the picks by the Vikings could have been pre-planned. Was it all masterminded by Kenneth McAlpin? Did he say, all right, mate, do you want to just kill all those picks for me? Oh, yeah, because he wasn't involved... In the mm. in the dying aspect, he yeah. Was, yeah, right. The mopping up. He only ever fights against uh, Danish, not Norse Vikings. So this is East rather than West Scotland, which does suggest that he's made a deal with one with lot the ones of Vikings. Behind him. Yeah. Mm. We have the treachery of Schoon. What's that? This is an alternative explanation of how he gets rid of his Pictish rivals. Okay. He invites all of them to court. Have a bit of a chat, mm. see if we can sort out this who's going to be king business. Mm. They all sit down on benches, which, unbeknownst to them, are fixed by bolts above a pit. The bolts are then removed, and the Pictish leaders are impaled on the spikes below, or killed by men from above. Tell you what I love about that. <laughs> is that, presumably, is that source the same one that told us about the um, statue contraption? It could well be, yes, Mr. Forden, Mr. Bauer. He is just loves an elaborate death. Like <laughs> Heath Robinson, he said, no, I'll tell you what they did. There was all these bolts, right, and a couple of ropes. He pulled the ropes like that, tapped that twice, and meanwhile they're just having, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. It's really, Why not just burn them? 
I mean, advice. We've all seen that Austin Powers scene. <laughs> well, I've got a gun in my bedroom. <laughs> I'll just do it right now. But seriously, they love a hall burning, and they go to all this trouble. Yeah. I just... I d- Why don't we just burn that hall? Just burn the hall? Sh- shut the door and set it on fire. Yeah. We don't need this. Elaborate. I just can't believe it. Well, one of the fun things with Kenneth is that even if some of these stories seem a bit unbelievable, a bit contradictory, it seems notable that all of these legends about him, he comes across as crafty and devious. Yeah. Well, by whatever means, he's definitely doing something underhand. Yeah. And it's definitely very convenient that so many of his rivals die off so quickly in the space of about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that's all right, isn't it? Well, yes, but all, mm. all a bit... Sc- Underhand and skullduggery. <laughs> yeah. I, d- I don't know what happens to me when I have this scandal section. So like, just, yeah, so what? You so kill them. Why do you just that? burn them? <laughs> well, I never thought I'd say that. Um, against him, you could argue that all of these high, all these stories are actually just medieval folklore. Yeah. And may not ever have happened. Almost certainly the pit thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I reckon he did kill them. Hmm. Not like that, surely. And there's no evidence of any untoward activity in the bedroom. I I mean, I think looking at this, I think Mary's got more scandal going than him. Yeah, yeah. Because getting rid of your enemies is pretty standard. Yeah. I mean, it's an underhand way of doing it. But <laughs> but there's, there's more individual different bits to Mary than, well, yeah. yeah. Third place of scandal is Alexander II. He scored four. Oh no, actually, that's well, that's wrong on many levels. Joint first with fourteen out of twenty are oh. Alexander II and James VI. Okay. Um, both third overall in mm. Rex Factor winners. First up, Alexander II. Mm. He has at least one illegitimate child, and mm. then for quite a bit of time lived apart from his wife. Yeah. Which seems fairly standard, but let's not forget that this wife was the sister of Henry III, the King of England. Oh yeah. Playing with fire, there, and the right? fact that he then goes on to marry an enemy of Henry the Third. Yes, yeah. He's a bit brutal. You know, even Edward the First might flinch at a few of Alexander's methods. In Caithness, there were eighty men who were present at the hall burning of the bishop, and Alexander rounded them up and deprived them of their hands and feet. <laughs> not funny. <laughs> Don't know why I'm laughing. It was the, it was a phrasing you used there, but um. So, and were they just left where they were and had to sort of wriggle it, around? It's possible that maybe they lost one of each rather than all of them. But Okay. Uh, why? Why? Because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time? Pretty, pretty much. I guess they didn't step in to help. Right. They acquiesced. Mm, okay. Um, in Galloway, after he put down that rebellion when he took control of the mm. territory, he had two rebels torn apart um, by being t- um, tied to horses, which then galloped oh, off. Oh, man. That's Gross. But the biggie, the one which really made the impact, was the McWilliam dynasty being brought to an end. Mm. The last in line was a baby girl. Oh, no. And she was publicly put to death in Forfa by having her head smashed against the cross oh. in the town centre and her brains dashed out. Oh, gosh. What is wrong with him? <laughs> Well, he wanted to make an impact that uh, people would uh, remember and take lessons from, and here we are, several hundred years later, thinking, whoa, that's a bit much. Don't mess with him. I'm speechless. Did we, we t- you told me this before. Yeah. <laughs> you probably blacked it out because it was so horrifying it's the first horrible. time. It's horrible. It's quite nasty. 
Yeah, I, th- I see what you mean. I think Ed, even even Edward the First might not have done that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Right. <laughs> okay. And so you reckon James the Sixth can match that? Well, dubious. I suppose maybe Alexander is a bit one tone in his yeah, yeah. scandal colours. Yeah. James the Sixth acquiesces in the execution of his mother. Mary, Queen of Scots, to secure the English throne. Mary had proposed to him that they could be co-rulers, but instead he signed a treaty with Elizabeth. And although he does send ambassadors to England to try and say, look, you can't be executing her, she's my mother, she's a former Queen of Scots, this isn't the way to do things, he sends another pair of ambassadors to England to say, but if you did, wouldn't make too much of a fuss about it. Yeah, right, okay. That is sneaky, sneaky, sir. The Gowry conspiracy in 1600, he was supposedly uh, survives a murder attempt when he was invited to the house of this sort of slightly rebellious family to go and see some treasure that they'd found. Oh, okay, this has got Ford and written all over it. But it seemed a bit unusual that if they're going to kill the king that they'd invite him publicly to their own house and that a king who's so afraid for his own personal safety would go to this house of former rebels unarmed and without mm. an armed guard... And James's accounts, when he was then recounting them, didn't apparently always tally up in terms of who was doing what and when. And he owed them some money. Uh, Right. (laughs) Okay. So, what, he went in and just killed them? Well, he didn't, but he maybe organised. Okay. Who was asking him about this? Like, in my mind, he's the king and he's not really answerable to it. Well, the Presbyterian Kirk. Uh, okay. We're yeah. a bit sniffy about all of this because the Ruthven family, the ones that had rebelled against him and the Gowries had rebelled against him when he was all matey chummy with Esme Stewart. Yeah. Okay. And finally, he is widely thought to have been homosexual. Yes. Which, this day and age, absolutely fine, but at the time, perhaps not quite de rigueur. No. He had numerous favourites and there was much discussion from contemporaries at the time about whether he may be a little bit really fancying the males. We had that Esme Stewart chap at the start. Um, perhaps this is more just James being besotted with this glamorous man that shows him affection, yeah. which he's never had before. But later, he tends to have younger favourites that he's got this slightly paternal okay. relationship with. One of them is Robert Carr. James became his tutor. Um, now, Robert Carr then has an affair with the wife of a chap called Lord Overbury. Mm. And James is in some ways complicit when Overbury is transpired to have been murdered. Because Overbury is told by James to go off to foreign lands where he can be out of the way for Robert Carr to have his fun with the wife. Mm-hmm. And Overbury refuses, so James has him imprisoned. Mm. And while Overbury is imprisoned, his wife has him poisoned. Okay. So James is kind of connected. And apparently, uh, Robert Carr and the wife get off. The murder charge, because Robert Carr apparently threatens to uh, go public with some of the stories he could tell about James the Sixth. Okay, so this uh, this Carr chap mm. is having an affair with the king and this other fellow's yes. wife. Right. Okay. <laughs> Need to do an episode on him. And we also have George Villiers, later Duke of Buckingham. Yeah, I know him. They were inseparable in James's latter years, a very handsome chap, apparently. There are various accounts of them kissing and lots of love between them. There's subsequently been discovered this secret passage underground or just between the walls between their two bedchambers. Oh, nice. That's cool. Wow. Okay, yeah, that, I'll give you that. Mm. It is far less brutal 
Yeah. But he's got every he's, he's scoring well in each category there, isn't he? Yeah. No, I've um I've got my score. I mm. know how that's going. What are, what what do you think you're needing for this? Because actually we've got brutality with Alexander, we've got a lot of very kind of juicy stuff with James, we've got all this stuff with Mary that it's I that actually, dicey issue of how much we actually I scored that incorrectly. <laughs> um I think uh you've got James I think James and his mother score very similarly. Hmm. They've both got um they've both got a nice palette there. Yeah. We're not sure really about them, any of uh, it. Mm. But there's enough there's enough on the plate that some of it might stick. Mm. Weird mixing metaphors there. <laughs> so um but Alexander has just thought, right, well I'm going for this. Yeah. And I'm going hard. Yeah. Um Ken You're Bond villain, I suppose, haven't you, with his uh, treachery at Schoon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If we, he's tell. the only one that probably does an evil laugh after his scandalous deeds. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine Alexander the Great is too evil. Alexander the Great, Alexander, Alexander the, the Second. Second, is too evil for an evil laugh because there's no edge of 1970s vaguely comical <laughs> Bond villain. That's just horror show evil. He's like again Edward the first, the Braveheart moment was like, but we'll kill our own men. Yes. <laughs> we'll kill theirs as well. <laughs> oh God, I love that man. <laughs> uh okay, I'm changing my score. Subjectivity. So bottom again, subjectivity, Mary Queen of Scots. Mm. She only got six out of twenty, the um second worst of all the Rex Factor winners. I can imagine this. But, again, she does have some things in her favour that make you think that, actually, maybe she'd be quite a nice queen to have. Which is that interesting thing of what you'd want in a queen if you could put her in different circumstances, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Her personality, all the contemporary... Well, not all. Many of the contemporaries note that she is incredibly charming, both in person and crowds. Mm. So she's got that... We, we must refer to this. I don't know. I'm sure there must be other people that we could refer to, but the Clinton thing oh, <laughs> of yeah. making you feel like you're the only person that matters in the room. When you're in conversation with her, it really feels like yeah. she's fascinated by what you're saying. Kennedy. We'll do Kennedy. Kennedy. Mm. Um, it's a fun court, and it's been quite drab for a while with the Protestant Reformation and no one actually ruling all this sort of stuff. She brings the fun back and the sophistication of the French court. There's dressing up, banquets, going on tour. Apparently an English ambassador went home when he was told that he had to wear Highland dress for one tour. <laughs> John Knox was appalled by all the frivolity, the dancing, the music, and apparently the ladies sometimes dressing up as men. Mm. Like a good steward, she liked to go off into the streets and pretending to be either beggars or men and seeing what all the people would do and act. And pretend, and the people were forced to pretend they didn't know that this was her pretending. It's nearly six foot. <laughs> yeah. And actually, she shows a lot of promise as the rule of Scotland. She comes back, very difficult, indeed perhaps unprecedented challenges for a Scottish ruler. No previous monarch has had a situation where the church is against the monarchy. Mm. It's actually been the crux yeah, yeah. for all of her predecessors. And she doesn't have any allies, doesn't have any sort of family people there to support her, no natural supporters. But she rejects that Catholic uprising in favour of the middle course between Protestants and Catholics. Mm. 1562 to 65, she spent a lot of time on progress visiting her subjects. And her French dowry meant that actually she got a lot of money, so she paid for her own household with her own money. Huh. Only had to wage one taxation during the whole reign, and that was for her James VI baptism. That is big scoring, isn't it? No, mm. well, the downside is that from 1565 to 67, everything got a bit chaotic. What is the mass there, though? <laughs> so it's two years of chaos. How many years was she in power before it all went weird? Uh, three. Mm. All right, so there's, <laughs> more, there's more good stuff. 
the marriage to Darnley, the return of the Lennox faction disturbs the balance of power, so that led to the chase about raid, which she did put down, the Riccio crisis, which she did deal with, and then her husband's assassination, which, even mm. if she was innocent, she handled it very badly. Yeah. And the marriage to Bothwell led to ultimately civil war and her enforced abdication. She never really understood the factional politics in Scotland, never mastered it. So that's perhaps why she comes undone in dealing with the nobles. She never really gets mm. how it works. And unlike Elizabeth, she was heart over head with two disastrous marriages. Mm, yeah, they were really bad choices, weren't they? And they really bring her down. And it really is those marriages that do lead to disaster. Until mm. that point, she was doing very well. And not to say that she shouldn't have married, but perhaps she should have picked better people yeah and we contrast how elizabeth survives being queen in this divided period and ultimately comes out on top mary we like the sort of romantic enthusiastic doing something but it didn't actually do very well for her as a long ruling monarch no it makes me uh, and we keep coming back to this but the comparisons between elizabeth and mary are too tempting not to make mm. but i wonder how elizabeth would have fared with in mary's position and vice versa yeah would have been really interesting it's the thing with mary you think well if you could just put her that person but in a different period it'd be brilliant and it, all of it is so nearly she nearly was the mm. uh, queen of this north atlantic powerhouse and then nearly even when that fell apart nearly the queen of england yeah oh. Ultimately, she only rules in person for about six years and then has to abdicate. Most of her life, she's either in exile in France or a prisoner in England. Mm. No. Poor lady. Next up, Kenneth McAlpin, who scored 10.5 out of 20. Um, just one place above her, 11th for the Rex Factor winners. Mm. Good things that he did. Um, 848, he personally oversaw the translocation of the relics of St. Columba from Iona to Dunkeld. Columba was this sort of great early... Irish bishop that founds Iona and basically is the sort of father of Scottish Christianity. Right. And this is the same year that Kenneth completed his conquest over the Picts. So it's a sense that he's marking a new beginning, transferring the relics to the centre of this new kingdom that he's formed. We've said before about Constantine II perhaps being the first real king of Scotland, but it's things like this that make you think, well, actually, to be fair, yeah. Kenneth McCarpin does is starting something more than simply being... Yeah. Killing people. Um, now, he lived and died in a Pictish palace for Teviot, which isn't just a military enclosure. Archaeology shows that it's got various treasures. There was a Dublin cross, this archway, which is apparently very good. Maybe he just inherits it, but it's a hint that there was a cultural hinterland to this yeah. warlord that is now largely lost to history, but it may have been there. He is said to have transferred the Stone of Schoon from Argyll to Schoon. Ah. This is the coronation stone from which all Scottish monarchs until, well, until up to and including John Balliol. If mm. you're in, uh, where was it? Argyll. Mm. And so I said, there's a stone of Schoon. He said, well, I'll put it back. <laughs> I'll put it back. What's it doing up here? And he's got some pretty good diplomacy. So he said he married one of his daughters to Rune, who was the son of King Artgill of Strathclyde, mm. which helped to um, end a sort of conflict with that regional uh, that regional rival. Mm. And he married another daughter, Mile Muir, to Aeth Finliath, the High King of Ireland. Not not that Aeth. Okay. And Mile Muir then later marries another High King, Niall Glundoff. And she takes in Kenneth's grandsons when they were exiled by Girick. And these include Constantine II of Scotland. Oh, we liked. Who we liked mm. and who we argued could be considered the first real 
mm. King of Scots. Mm. But Kenneth MacAlpin's diplomacy and that marriage alliance is the reason that Constantine II was ultimately able to reclaim the throne. Yeah. All right. Okay. Against him, um, he has been accused of genocide against the Picts. Mm. The Scotty Chronicon, Walter Bowers, said that so great was the fury with which he raged not only against men, but also against women and small children, that every living thing which he had not carried off with him, he destroyed by sword or fire. <laughs> its whole stock and race is said to have been lost together with its own distinctive language. Yeah, um, that's pretty bad, isn't it, a, a genocide? Arguably, if there is a bit of a merger between Scots and Picts, probably the church is more significant in doing that merger than anything oh, yeah. that Kenneth did. Good point. And indeed, he loses that connection to Iona, the spiritual home of Scottish Christianity. There's a cut-off. Whereas Alfred in Scotland, when he's kind of doing... In Scotland, Alfred in England, when he's doing a similar kind of thing, church and state very much together, forming this new nation. Kenneth, uh, perhaps, has lost part of that. Maybe they've been stronger with it but yeah. they did keep the bones so yeah that's but but i own it even to this day people know of mm. and it's weird not to i mean for safety's sake but yeah, yeah. There, there is a, a separation there mm. anyway not too bad no S- save a bit of genocide next up alexander the second 16 and a half out of 20 oh that's good very high score fifth best uh of rex factor winners um Unlike his father, he realised that pursuing Northumbria was a bit of a futile policy, so he makes peace with England. And despite the odd flare-ups, peace lasts from 1217 to 1296 mm. between England and Scotland. A very long period until, I don't know what happened in 1296, but someone obviously... <laughs> <laughs> someone did their level best to make it a lovely, lovely place to live. Despite this peace, he does refuse to do homage to England. So he's showing Scottish independence. He was the one that secured the canonisation of Margaret of Wessex, St. Margaret of Scotland. So Scotland's only saint. He's the one that actually gets it done. Only saint? Only saint. Did not know that. Um, He confirmed the independence of the Church of Scotland from Church of York, Archbishopric of York. Or rather, he got the papacy to acknowledge that... There there was a high priest, what do you call him? Archbishop of St. Andrews or something, wasn't Mm. it? And he gained... England's first acknowledgement that there was a fixed border between England and Scotland. Mm. So in a funny way, this is actually the English acknowledging that Scotland formally exists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's... I mean, there's a number of people here that could be said to be the father of Scotland. Mm. So you've got Kenneth, maybe Alexander when you get agreement on the border Mm. that looks like today's border. Something more like modern Scotland, perhaps. He's the greatest patron of monasteries since David I, um, old and new orders, which suggests that he is actually personally involved. Mm. Um, he expands royal justice across Scotland, acted against unjust dispossession and uh, the rights of lawful heirs against intruders. Mm. Apparently promotes jury against trial by combat or ordeal. Lawful heirs versus intruders. People just coming and thinking, right, he's dead, so it's land. up for grabs now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, he's obviously a very highly efficient financial system because he's got very large dowries for his sisters when they marry and he's able to offer to buy the Western Isles from the yeah. King of Norway. Mm. So he's doing pretty well there. We have the beginnings of Parliament, mm. or colloquia at the time. It was mainly a chance to resolve the disputes between nobles, but it was pretty effective. His reign is pretty stable, largely peaceful. And he also apparently restored the balance a bit between Norman and Scottish elites, because in previous ones with like David I and William the Lion, it was a bit Anglo-Norman in character. Mm. Alexander's got a bit more of a balance between the two. 
Well, it puts more of a Scottish flair on the whole nobility mm. scene. Well, it just promotes native Scottish lords as well as the Anglo-Norman. Uh, so we okay. had chaps like Farquhar MacTaggart. Oh, right. Okay. Boom. I hadn't thought about that. So the lords were quite French. Quite a few of them had been increasingly French in previous reigns, but Alexander mm. is using both Scottish and mm. Anglo-Norman ones. Against him, we did mention that brutality. Mm. Not the most laudable no. quality in a monarch. Um, apparently at the time you defended all of this stuff as medieval admin. I, and I was just about to again. <laughs> like All of the stuff that comes before, I think, well, is it because of that? I'm not a fan of <laughs> capital punishment as a uh, deterrent. doesn't work. But... Um, at this time, it worked really well. <laughs> I, when it's against uh, uh, armies, mm. maybe... Well, no, hang on, I don't believe that at all. What am I talking about? It was a very peaceful time. <laughs> He was also very brutal. I'm not saying there's a link. <laughs> <laughs> um, he does, particularly towards the end of his reign, have some difficulties with the nobles. There's a chap, Walter Bissett, who is accused of, uh, accused of murder, and uh, Justicius failed to stop um, a mob sacking his lands. Mm. And when Alexander didn't sort it out, Bissett eventually went off to Henry III and stoked tensions, which almost led to war in 1244. Why didn't he sort it out? Now, Alexander did then replace the Justiciers, and he got a new loyal man, Alan Durwood, to balance off against this powerful common family that had pursued Walter Bissett. But when Alexander II dies and leaves his young son, Alexander III, with a minority, there was this quite damaging split between Durwood and Common. Mm. So you could argue that he's actually set up the difficulties for the minority to come. Yeah. But obviously he didn't know that that was going to be an issue because he didn't expect to die. When he did. No. Top of uh, Group C for subjectivity is James the Sixth. 18 out of 20, wow. second best overall. Um, he's an intellectual monarch, Scotland's mm. only philosopher king, published a treatise on uh, the theory of monarchy and public health. Mm. Public Inclu health? Um, he was advised against uh, smoking. Oh, he hated it, didn't he? Mm. And strange that Virginia's all about tobacco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Jamestown and all that. We have a Jacobean age. We've got Shakespeare writing some of his best mm. works, like King Lear, The Tempest, Macbeth. Other writers, like Ben Johnson and John Donne, with science, Francis Bacon, court masks under Inigo Jones, and, of course, the major legacy of uh, James's reign, albeit in England, the King James Bible. Yes, that's biggie. Mm. Law and order, he removes uh, the powerful border reavers between the Anglo-Scottish border. Um, brutal campaigns, but it does largely bring this previously violent and lawless area mm. to lawless. <laughs> no, <laughs> lawfulness. Lawfulness. <laughs> he formally annexed the Northern Isles and abolished Norse law, so brought it into Scottish I customs. I can't believe that was still going on in his reign. Well, no longer. 1609, the Statutes of Iona forced uh, Highland chiefs to send their sons to be educated in the lowlands, and they were now made personally responsible for clan behaviour. Hmm. So no more blood feuds and all this sort of business. Oh, right. And he survives. That's the biggie. We recall 1406 to 1583, 96 out of 177 years were spent under regencies, 54% of the time. Seven monarchs, the accession age average was seven years old. All of them dying violently, basically, and pretty young. James dies in bed at 58, succeeded by a 24-year-old son. King of the entire island. Hmm. Yeah. 
That is that is punchy, isn't it? I mean, against him, he was quite indifferent to the Jacobean age. Used to fall asleep during plays, didn't like dancing or music or earrings. Really? Apparently. I See, I thought he was far more jolly than this. His wife was the cultural patron. He, I mean, he had a bit of a sense of humour and he was a bit coarse. He's just not very high cultured. Right. Mm. Bum jokes and <laughs> <laughs> rude pictures. Right. Um, <laughs> a big stain against James's name, really, is his attitude towards witches, which is to believe that they exist and therefore lots of women need to be put on trial and executed. He published a treatise to all about witchcraft, demonology. Um, fifteen ninety to ninety one, over a hundred women were investigated in Scotland for being witches, and many of them were burnt. And then fifteen ninety seven, there were four hundred trials, with two hundred being executed. And James apparently personally supervised um, the interrogation and torture of some suspects. That's that's bad. That's less uh, advanced for that's the philosopher king. So backward thinking, isn't it? He's losing points here, Graham, to me. He's um, seems to have been financially illiterate, consistently running himself into debt and just completely unable to change his ways despite people trying to deal with it. He just doesn't seem to understand yeah. how spending money and not having it is a problem. Apparently in 1600, guests at the baptism of Prince Charles had to be asked to bring their own provisions. Really? Yeah. When he was King of England as well at this point? Well, no, that's when he's King of Scots. So it's really becoming King of England is what saves Scotland from its financial difficulties and that suddenly he inherits this really rich kingdom. Huh? That's funny that that's exactly what happens with the Act of Union as well. Mm. Saves Scotland from financial difficulties. Mm. And although that's a benefit of him becoming King of England, the negative is that he promised return to Scotland every three years, but in fact he only came once and he only came back basically just to irritate the Kirk. <laughs> Look at me now. <laughs> Brilliant. Though in, he does boast that he was able to rule Scotland by the pen from England, where his predecessors had failed to do it by the sword. Yeah. Um, his grand ambition, once he becomes King of England, was to create Great Britain. And although he gets coins and flags and the idea survives, he does fail in the short term to mm. create this new nation. And some people would argue that he sets up a lot of the issues like the conflict with the Kirk, the conflict with Parliament in England, financial difficulties, all of these things will yeah. ultimately be major factors in the downfall of Charles I. Yeah, the divine right of king's business. He failed in the bits that he tried at. Like, the, yeah. you know, the, the, when he tried to force them, uh, mm. both nations together. I've changed my score. Ooh, so how are they How are they looking at this point? Because we've got an interlake. Like Mary was the worst one, and yet in some ways perhaps... If you could pick a ruler, perhaps she'd be the one you'd actually want to be ruled by. She just failed <laughs> to actually do yeah. it successfully with her own circumstances. Yeah. So let me on on the Mary thing. Mm. When she abdicates and uh, goes off to England. Yeah. There's not actually been any. There's the runabout raids and all that. Yeah. And, but there's not been any real civil unrest. No. Well, as yeah, we I mean, I suppose we did have the chase about raid, and then we had the assassination of Darnley, and then there was the battle, which wasn't which, fought but led to abdication, and then she escaped and fought a battle and lost, and then there was civil war for a few years. So there's a lot of civil unrest, <laughs> and then under James, yeah, it was all right. Well, so I suppose technically the civil wars that are about Mary are actually in James's reign but yeah. that's because Mary was because Mary did it, abdicated yeah. James is only a baby so if you're going to blame anyone for that it's probably fairer to blame Mary than to blame James I here have changed the order completely <laughs> no single 
person is in the order that their points suggest. Mm. Um, I like Alexander. That's the tricky thing because, in a way, like if you, someone who's actually going to get the job done, mm. it's Alexander, and it's a, a peaceful. If, if you're against him, rubbish. Mm. But it's, if you were just a fella growing turnips, yeah, it's all right. You've got more justice. You know uh, what else we've got here? Parliament, bit of Parliament. Mm. Yeah, you've got your own saint. Lovely stuff. <laughs> That's nice. Always nice to have a saint. Just a bit more peaceful. He's got his underlying for things. the things that he's actually... Yeah, apart from the baby smashing head thing. And the horses. Look, oh, I've forgotten that one. That was gross. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's interesting. That I think the thing with subjectivity we often say is who would you want to be a subject of? Yeah. Alexander is in some ways perhaps the least sympathetic monarch and yet the firmest. It's a bit yeah. like in football where you kind of want... The sort of glorious flowing sort of Pep Guardiola yeah. stuff. But if you don't want to be relegated, you bring in Sam Allardyce. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Grind out some dull games to yeah. keep you through. Uh, yeah, I sort of think that actually as well for uh, a, our turnip grower, yeah. the big fear is really the nasty neighbour England downstairs. Mm. Um, and the one out of this list that is going to keep them at bay most is going to be Alexander II. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, there's all that back on the boards. Kenneth McAlpin, it's within the country. Mm. James VI just doesn't really like... He's a fortunate. Although, in a way, he's the one that becomes King yeah. of England yeah. and thus solves that border sort that of issue. Problem. In a way, he's the one that's perhaps going to make it the best place to live. Yeah, most peaceful. The irony with James is that Scotland is perhaps at its most peaceful under in its history under James the Sixth. When he's not there, yeah, but yeah when he's exactly. not there. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Longevity. Kenneth McAlpin is the shortest reign from eight four three to five eight, fifteen mm-hmm. years. That's a score of nine and a half. Mary Queen of Scots, fifteen forty two to sixty seven. That's twenty four point five eight years. Mm-hmm. Thirteen out of twenty. Alexander the second, twelve fourteen to forty nine, thirty four point five eight, and a score of fifteen point five. But the clear winner here is James the sixth, fifteen sixty seven to sixteen oh three, fifty seven point six seven years, the longest reign in Scottish history, twenty out of twenty. It's very near the one of the longest reigns in British history. Exactly, and he's only fifty eight when he dies. Yeah. Dynasty. So, bottom of the pack, um, well, it's a, it's a joint bottom, actually. Alexander II and Mary, Queen of Scots both had just one surviving legitimate child. Mm. Next up, James VI had two surviving legitimate children, but the winner here for Dynasty was Kenneth McAlpin. Four children that we know of that survive him. Nothing else to do. Mm. So, obviously, they all have that certain something, mm. but we've now got to decide um, who is going to get the vote to go through to the grand final. Of these four monarchs, who is truly deserving of the... Rex Factor! Now, it's not all about the scores, of course. It does help. But, so that we know the scores, Mary got a total score of 33.5. Mm. Kenneth McAlpin got 53.5. James VI got 56 but top dog in this group, fourth best overall, was Alexander II with 62.5. But, as we said, it's not all about scores. It's about that certain 
something the star quality the arguably like you said in terms of biography if you're going to do the hollywood story it's perhaps the one with the lowest score mary that's actually got all that talent and we said in subjectivity she'd got that charm Mm. the renaissance court that's literally star quality that people seem to be persuaded by her yeah it's got to come down to personality here they're all rex factor winners if it's points Mm. then as you know you just said about alexander but is there, there's not much to go on his character. Bash, bash, bash. Sort out the Western Isles. Have a kid die. But it's a very... I mean, he's what, mainland, all of mainland Scotland for the first time. Mm. The, the borders with England sticking up for Scotland. He's a very effective monarch. I think I remember his downside. We felt that it was almost like if you combine all of his reign and maybe the start of Alexander III's reign you'd have this incredible monarch. To what extent is he hampered by dying on the verge of conquering the Western Isles? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd, you'd have like a Bruce. Mm. Yeah. But then if he died before he bothered to start to go for the Western Isles, maybe we wouldn't have be criticising him for not having done it. Yeah, I know. I, I, don't, I don't think I, I can criticise him for it. Um, I think... In the same way that I don't criticise Edward <laughs> for dying on the way to Scotland. And the chapter we're probably not mentioning quite as much, I suppose, in all of this is Kenneth McAlpin, the man at the start. But, you know, we've got the we've got the fishy angels. Yeah. We've got the James Bond deaths for his Pictish rivals. Yeah. Um, yeah, you sort of do really get the idea that maybe... They were just lads on tour and getting absolutely hammered, saying, well, <laughs> well, even if an angel, you say, even if, well, I can dress up as an angel, right? Let's go and bash the pits. <laughs> um, he could be quite a lot of fun. It's just the lack of information that we have of that time. And the suspicion that almost all the information is made up. Absolutely made up. As yeah. you said, if we think that Constantine II is the one that perhaps deserves more credit for creating Scotland, that implies that Kenneth mm. doesn't deserve as much credit as he gets. Yeah, though he's very sneaky-sneaky. He's very sneaky-sneaky, yeah. and, you know, it does have to start somewhere, and Constantine, yeah. as we said, he would not probably even been able to be king, other than not existing. <laughs> but yeah. that marriage alliance that Kenneth made was the crucial factor in helping Constantine get back to Scotland when the royal dynasty had been supplanted. Yes. So he's not yeah, just he's not... a simplistic mm. walloper of Picts. <laughs> no, it is good. We've also got the fascinating thing, of course, of mother and son in the same group and facing off against each other. Yeah. Mary, perhaps by the, the more compelling character and personality, but James VI, the more successful ruler. I mean, it's one of the only Rex Factor encounters where we can say that he almost literally defeated Mary, Queen of Scots. He actually beat her in real life. Yeah, true, very true. And it. Can we say that he killed her? It's maybe a bit harsh, <laughs> I'll go with but that. Uh, certainly didn't help. Oh, this is interesting. This is very interesting. So my scores have come up. Oh, I don't like what's happened, though. Oh. It's weird. The numbers <laughs> do not reflect. <laughs> maybe I have <laughs> No, 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 it is right, it is right. It's just the, um, it's just their personality that doesn't reflect this, um... This final score. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You've got the different factors that we've looked at. You compare mm. them against each other, and then they paint an overall picture. Overall picture, and mm. then there's that instinctive thing of who you want to win. Okay, but I can 
fill out my little card. Yes, so what we do, Ali and I um, both rank them from first to fourth. Mm. Um, what you, the public, will do is you will just simply choose your favourite. Mm. So whoever you want to win the group, that's the one that you vote for to win the group. And then the winner of each group goes through to the grand final. Thank you very much. Where they will face the winners of Group A, Group B, and top seed, Robert the Bruce. Wow, I was not thinking that would happen. <laughs> that, uh, that was interesting. When you uh, work out how your own brain works. <laughs> Edward the First wins again. <laughs> <laughs> was that an option? No. <laughs> So, Ali and I have voted in Group C. It's now down to you, and I suspect your vote could well be crucial in deciding who goes through to the grand final. It really can, because I think that we will have voted quite differently there. Mm. I think I've, I've, I wasn't thinking about how you would vote. I was going <laughs> completely on my own gut. And then when I finished and I was looking at them, I was thinking, mm, this could be interesting. So, Ali and I voted, but it's now down to you. So please, please, please do vote. We'd love to get as many people voting as yeah. possible. Um, you'll get the links to groups A, B and C on rexfactor.wordpress.com rexfactor.podbean.com on Twitter at rexfactorpod and on Facebook the rexfactor podcast page Us. if you would like to support the podcast outside of the playoffs you could uh, leave a review on iTunes for us and subscribe oh sorry I'm, I, I'm, I think Rupert's got yoghurt on my glasses <laughs> <laughs> that's alright I don't think it's going to spoil the podcast too much <laughs> i just worried that people are going to be trying to clean my glasses going <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you'd like to support us financially, we are a free podcast, but you can do a one-off donation via PayPal. Thank you. Again, rexadder.podbean.com or .wordpress.com. Or you can join the Privy Council. <whistles> if you do monthly donations, then you become a member of the Privy Council. All our Privy Council members get free access to the Privy Chamber bonus podcast, which we record after all of our normal podcast episodes mm. we get a bit more information on the monarch of the day and mm. he does a book review and we have a general oh i've got i've, I've done i've done two Ooh. since the last time um and they're quite fun a bit more laid back that's hours of material now it's hours yeah we're going since john bailey will be doing that so you get access to all the back catalog as well as all the new ones yeah. if you do five dollars or more a month you get access to all of our special episodes that's hours of material now, isn't it? <laughs> Next one will be on Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. And we've been saying it for a while, but that is now getting close to being actually done. Yeah, because we've only got one more episode of this. Mm. Um, $10 a month, you get all of that and a mug. Yep. And uh, $15 a month, you get to commission a blog on the subject of your choice. Mm -hmm. All very exciting. And during the playoffs, you get to vote for your favourite death of all the Scottish monarchs. That is just Privy Councillors. We need their... Uh, excellent insight yeah so please do vote in that if you haven't done already and if you want to become a privy councillor and vote you've still got time mm. and at that point we should welcome some of our new privy oh, councillors Maria Bach Philip Alderton Mia Heather Banks and Rob Fox welcome one and all arise I mean well uh, both both yeah welcome arise get up and yeah. be welcome <laughs> yeah um, so that's it for group C that's it for the first round of the playoffs I've loved um, recording in all these various different places for the playoffs. But yeah, we're back in our normal location now at my flat. Yeah. Because yours is inhospitable. At the it is. But inhabitable, or both. Absolutely both. <laughs> um, 30th of April is your deadline for Groups A and Group B. 
5th of March? No, 4th of May is your deadline for Group C. Yeah. After that, we'll find out how Ali, how me, how you have voted, and the combined scores will determine who gets to the grand final. Mm, that grand final is going to be fun. It really is. Until next time, goodbye from me. Cheerio.